Hello, this is your host, Dr. Casey Bradley. Welcome to the Real P3 Podcast, brought to you by the Sun Swine Group and Swine Nutrition Management. Welcome to the World Pork Expo Special Series. This episode will focus on nutrition and will feature Zimpro's Dr. Zach Rambo and Kent Nutrition's Dr. Jim Smith. In case you've just started listening to the Real P3 Podcast, There's a little background to my love of trace minerals and my relationship with Zimpro and working towards Cereal Zinc. My mentor and reason I am a swine nutrition was Dr. Gretchen Hill, a former professor at Michigan State University. Dr. Hill's lab focused a lot on zinc and copper. From there, my PhD focused on Zimpro's Avela Sal product for sal lameness and longevity In my professional career, I have focused on zinc nutrition and different strategies of reducing zinc oxide in nursery diets while I was at DSM with their organic acids and then in partnership with Zimpro on zinc form in the nursery. To learn more about the progress in trace mineral nutrition and swine nutrition, stay tuned to my interview with Dr. Zach Rambo. So, for this part of the Real P3, it's really exciting to have my friend Dr. Zach Rambo on because we both did our PhDs on trace minerals with Zimpro funded, correct? We did. We I was did different phases of production, but yeah, yeah, we absolutely did. You were a girl finish, if I remember. I did, yeah. So, that was in an era when there was a lot of questions and interest on can zinc improve the ractopamine response that we get in finishing things? And that was some of the early work that I did and uh, was part of my PhD plan of study, yeah. Definitely, and the sad thing is, is now we don't have retro- yeah, ractopamine. Yeah, but- yeah, ractopamine went away and the industry changed. And yeah, it's, it's some, a mutual friend of ours would say, the question never changes, but the answer does. Correct. Yeah. But it's really interesting to you see, you know, traditionally it was sows, right? Mm-hmm. And because Zimpro started out in dairy, and then, oh, well, just do what I do in cows, Casey, and, and figure it out. And, and sure. uh, so as I tell everybody, yeah, you may not recognize me on feet first because I learned how to do it the wrong way. And sure, <laughs> sure. But it's really interesting to have you in Zimpro. It's been exciting working with you guys. So if the audience doesn't know that we have participated together on different research trials, mm-hmm. I still use the sow lesion guide in my sow research as well and we've done some lean to finish i don't think the data we're going to talk about today on this nursery mortality is our trial that we ran in collaboration but kind of explain this because this is really exciting and really important for the industry yeah yeah no appreciate the introduction casey and certainly the work that you you did in in your phd program is foundational for us in the swine business and getting established in the swine industry and what Zinpro is focused on for the last 15 years in the south phase of production and the work that you referenced that we have started investing in is in the nursery space and when we think about loads of action and the roles that Zinpro performance minerals are going to play in pig production they're not just targeting the feet it's not just targeting epithelial tissue and we start thinking about post those powerful post-absorptive effects that Zinpro minerals can create in a pig that also is immune function. That is uh, health and robustness. And so there's so many different ways where trace minerals uh, and Zinpro performance minerals can help create 
a more robust pig that is able to encounter and overcome challenges more quickly. And one of the things that we would probably all agree on in the industry is that when we have healthier pigs, they perform better and are more profitable. And the work that you referenced that we've invested in in the nursery space further supports that. We have investigated the effects of Zinprozinc in nursery diets and what we've learned in those experiments or in those trials is that we can improve the health and livability of pigs and benefit performance. And so some of the key results that we see in the nursery phase are reductions in mortality and also improvements in gain and exit weight as well. Well, I think Dr. Gretchen Hill was probably a little bit before her time, and we talk about foundational. She's been my mentor, and she's why I study minerals, and I'm here today, you know, talking about zinc and that interaction in the immune system. We didn't have a lot of assays back then, and she looked at methylene and the binding and understanding that. So there's a lot of, I think, foundational work by her, Dr. Mahan, some other key swine nutritionists going in here, and then when we look at organic trace minerals, you know, producers look at average daily gain and feed efficiency. And I love finally coming to, I don't know if I was yelling or I got enough people on the bandwagon to say we need to look at livability. And it's exciting to see that we're seeing these advantages of giving proper nutrition. And it's hard in our business to kind of talk about livability in the, between the USDA, FDA requirements and stuff. Kind of walk through, I mean, we talked enhanced immunity, but what else do you think is going on with having proper zinc loads in the pigs? Yeah, great question, Casey, and a lot lot to unpack there. You know, when we think about some of the things you referenced with the foundational knowledge of trace minerals, there's still a lot of opportunity for us to understand what are those requirements in different phases of production, uh, and what are those minimum requirements that a pig needs for a typical production environment, let alone when we start to see some of the pressures that we run into with normal production. We have health events, we have weather events, we have unfortunately labor events that create challenges and stress on things and so when it comes to trace minerals and zinc specifically all of those are going to impact that individual animal's physiology their ability to overcome challenge and and get to the other side of it you know when we think about the role that zinpro plays in in the health and performance of a pig we're really talking about post-absorptive effects something bigger than just meeting a minimum requirement for average daily gain or feed conversion but those post-absorptive effects that i referenced that we have seen you know in certain challenge models that we've done we've seen naive pigs uh seroconvert antibodies to specific challenges more quickly we've seen them um, when we include zinc in those diets they have more robust t-cell counts in certain tissues in the face of a certain challenge and so that is what pushes us towards that idea that there's something different with post-absorptive metabolism or syndrome that allows those pigs to encounter and overcome those challenges more quickly. We're not a replacement for good biosecurity practices. We're not a replacement for proper vaccine protocols or those types of things. But certainly functional nutrition and the right nutrition is really key in setting those pigs up for success to overcome challenge when they when they experience it. Yeah. So let's talk about the global swine industry. Obviously we're at World Pork. We know different regions and zinc, you know, 
legislation and regulations, whatever you want to call it, is changing. Like, Zero Zinc was a big topic. And then we talk about in the U.S., oh, it's not coming here. It's not coming here. And, you know, like I say, some of these challenges I have, I think we've always used the tool of zinc oxide to combat post-weaning diarrhea and different things. Where do you think the advantage is if we go to low zinc diets with organics? And that's kind of, now we're really getting the realm where they pencil in and they price in because of that, you said post-absorptive value, but the pre-absorptive functionality and stuff is just as important. So kind of talk us through your position on that and, and going towards that as well. Yeah, and that is... That is a very interesting question and topic that is uh, a lot of diverse perspectives on that in the industry for sure. And something that I've noticed in the 10 years that I've been in the industry is that when we start to see change occur in other parts of the world with production practices or regulation, it's a matter of time before those things start to show up in the U.S. And while today it would appear that we are ways out from having regulated requirements on nutrient loadings, i.e. zinc in this conversation, or regulated amounts that we can put in those diets, uh, it wouldn't be surprising if that changed at some point in the future, and we saw limits on that. And, and to your question on, you know, as we move towards, uh, as other parts of the world move towards management practices and diet formulations, how do sources of zinc like Zinpro fit into that equation? And what we've learned from our European colleagues is that it is a fundamentally different feeding approach on those pigs uh, as compared to what we have done here in the in the States where we tend to focus on high nutrient density diets where we have a low intake animal and we're trying to maximize the nutrient intake so that we can maximize growth responses and get those pigs set up for success early. The European model is completely different. Um, their focus in the first two to three weeks post-placement is solely on feed intake. And so they're actually feeding very low nutrient density diets compared to what we're doing in the U.S. with the emphasis on let's get the gut set up the way we want it to, let's get feed intake established in that pig, let's get them on a good nutrition plane, let's get them on a high intake plane, and then, then we'll rely on compensatory gain or compensatory effects later on. So a lot of different opinions on that and you know I think in time we will probably see things change here in the US and, and we'll adapt and use the tools and the lessons from partners in other parts of the world to figure out how to best overcome it. Awesome. I'm going to go, not off topic, but I'm going to go in the water. Okay. It's the forgotten yeah. part of nutrition, right? Yeah. So there's been a lot of research out there looking at water quality, water issues. How does some of that higher mineral, higher calcium, higher iron water systems impact mineral absorption and the benefits of using different sources then? Wonderful question, because it is the forgotten nutrient, right? Most of the time when we uh, think about pig production, it's do we have water available? And, and that's the first one is do I have the right, the right flow rate? And then we'll figure out the quality piece of it later. Uh, it's a little scary when you're on South Farms and they say, don't drink the tap water. Well, that's a red flag for me uh, personally. Um, and to your question, when we start to get into um, different parts of the U.S., differences in soil type, i.e. minerals, um, 
you can get high calcium, high iron, or you know other other mineral forms, or even some instances that will stay on the mineral piece of it. When we start to get high calcium, high iron uh, in the in the water, that creates antagonism for absorption of trace minerals in the gut of the pig. It, so, like iron, for example, when we get really really high in iron, that's going to start to suppress the expression of DMT1 in the in the intestine, which is going to limit uptake uptake of manganese. So some evidence that would say that uh, zinc could be transported by DMT1, although primarily zip core. Um, there is some evidence that zinc will also use DMT1. Same thing with calcium. We get high calcium in there. There's the opportunity to create secondary complexes that can chelate uh, or antagonize the absorption of minerals that we want to get in the pig through the diet. So there is a lot of challenges when it comes to water quality um, and certainly in certain parts of the U.S. Um, water quality is an issue and it does impact the ability of the animal to absorb the nutrients out of the diet that we want them to so that they can achieve their production potential. Great, because one of my favorite products that my producers use is your water-soluble zinc product. Yeah. And then when we talk about that zero zinc, I think that's the piece to it of using it when you need it. And we're, you know, we talk about antimicrobial resistance, but I also think they become immune to zinc. And then so that if you're scared of taking the zinc out and looking at that value, you always have that water solution and kind of talk about what advantage that's given your producers with your water products. Yeah, absolutely. So Propass ZNLQ180 is a small pack water ad um, that you can run through a dosatron or water medication system. Um, it plays pretty well with a lot of different water ads that people are already using and uh, we do have a running list of those of what does and doesn't work well and what stacks well and what doesn't in a stock solution. And to your, your question, you know, what's the value, what's the benefit that people are seeing there? It allows you to do really targeted interventions with a functional nutrient periods of challenge or stress. So as an example, if I know that I'm going to be receiving a set of pigs from an active furs break in a sow farm, I should expect that their feed intake is going to be extremely challenged in that first five to ten days post-placement. And if, if by using a nutrient intervention through the water, like Zinco uh, Propass Zinc, that allows the producer to provide a nutrient solution to the pig that benefits gut integrity, that benefits uh, immune competence, um, that helps get that pig off to a better start with their, their health status in an extremely challenged situation. So in those situations where we know we're going to have low feed intake, pigs are still going to drink water, and so that's a tool that, that uh, can help those pigs overcome those challenges. We also have folks that are, are finding success and seeing benefits with e breaks. Um, so that's a tool that we can use as an intervention um, in those late-breaking E. coli events when we start to drop the zinc oxide down out of our diets. Or uh, another situation is when we're transitioning to N2 to N3 diets where that zinc level naturally starts to drop. That's a tool that we can use to bridge that, in, that feed transition to get those pigs through it with fewer enteric events. Well, thank you, Zach. It's great catching up with you, and it's good for the audience to hear 
not just my opinion on minerals, but uh, the real mineral experts. So thank you. Oh, it's a pleasure, Casey. <laughs> Make sure you stay tuned for my interview with Dr. Jim Smith with Kent Nutrition after this short message from our co-founders, Swine Nutrition Management. Swine Nutrition Management is a consultancy service in South Africa, whereas pig nutritionists have a vision to provide customers with practical, up-to-date, and accurate nutritional information, which will add value to their farming enterprises by moving closer to unlocking the genetic potential of their animals. They develop tailored, cost-effective feeding programs for customers. Their approach is not to develop least cost, but rather best cost feed programs. By reviewing the entire cost structure of the farm, this includes a deep understanding of the production equation, which is driven by throughput, productivity, and feed efficiency. The interview with Jim went beyond just covering a difference of nutrient requirement needs of the Berkshire pigs versus standard commercial feeding programs. But the need for the pork industry to support and embrace niche systems as demand for this type of product is continuing to grow, while overall pork consumption is reducing in the North America swine industry. I have had an opportunity to work with niche producers and have also raised swine in multiple environments, including pasture-based systems. As a nutritionist, I need to change my mindset based on the customer's needs. So stay tuned for a fun conversation to one of my dear colleagues, Dr. Jim Smith with Kent Nutrition. Well, welcome back to the Real P3, Dr. Smith. I have Dr. Jim Smith, I call him Jim, James Smith from Kent Nutrition. And we're going to talk about something a little different. We, we normally get on here and we talk about careers and different things like that in the past, Jim. But today we're going to be talking about Berkshire production and the work that Kent Nutrition has done in that area. So if the, our audience doesn't know you, can you briefly introduce yourself and your background? Oh, yeah. Grew up in Indiana, did an undergrad at Purdue University, did a master's and PhD at Kansas State, uh, looking at uh, some zinc oxide work and then uh, some modeling and energy in grow finish. And over the past, it's been 25 years in the in the pork industry, I've been on uh, both the feeder side and the uh, ingredient side. In the last 10 years, I've been a technical swine nutritionist at Kent Nutrition Group. Awesome. So why did Kent decide to kind of focus on Berkshire and kind of just walk us through, you know, that program and what brought that about and, you know, the challenges that that type of pig faces? Well, it's an interesting question, and, and I can tell you the exact crossroad in northeast Iowa between Maquoketa and Decora, where a salesman and I had just made a sales call on one of our customers that we were feeding Berkshire pigs. And we put together a special premix that had some additives because of the the uh, antibiotic-free nature of the production. And I looked at him and said, we need to feed some pigs. Because up to that point, I and most of the nutritionists that were dealt with Berkshire and niche uh, production, or specialty production, would simply take what we would feed, say, a PIC or a FAST or a DNA, and then we would do some sort of adjustment to it, whether we used feed intake as an adjuster or just gut feel to reduce the nutrition because the specialty heritage and Berkshire pigs grow differently because the selection emphasis over the years. And that, in my brain, wasn't good enough. So we took it to our research committee, and it ended up being uh, a priority for us. 
And April of last year, we put uh, 480 Berkshire wean pigs into our nursery and fed them uh, through the wean to finish to come up with our recommendations. And I think that's phenomenal because when when a lot of us, like we're focusing on PIC and that's kind of to me like the gold standard and we adjust down on cost even from PIC if I'm feeding PIC pigs. But there's a huge market. There's a growing demand for niche pork. And traditionally, or at least the last decade, that type of producer has been underserved by research, by academia, and products on the market. So with your research, what did you find out about these Berks and what changed in your mind and nutrition for them? Well, first and foremost, it is really interesting walking into a nursery or grill finish floor and it's full of black pigs it, because it's you're not used to it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we discovered some just anecdotal. The Berkshires are hardy pigs. They don't grow near as fast as what we're used to with PICs. We, we extended our feeding period by four weeks compared to what well, we typically did with the pigs in our research farm. And part of that was because the pigs grew slower. And the other part was we wanted to feed these pigs heavier than the targeted market weight so we could do a little bit of modeling work and, and see if we could more precisely look at some of the amino acid requirements. But what we found was that, well, first of all, the treatment structure of our trial was we started with our standard Kent nutrition program with the amino acid ratios that we've perfected at our research farm. And then we came down incrementally with three treatments. And our thought was we're going to have some sort of uh, quadratic response that mm-hmm. two or three would do it. Well, what we ended up finding was that when we fed the, the lowest amino acid fortification, we had the greatest feed conversion, the greatest gain, and the greatest profitability. And as you mentioned that, that this is an underappreciated or underserviced market, we discovered as we've worked with these uh, customers and much like Nyman Ranch, they're getting paid on a live weight basis. And when mm-hmm. we did the economic analysis of this trial, we gained almost $15 a pig more profit because of heavier pigs, better feed conversion. And we used the dollar live weight, which our, our cooperator was getting fed through their program. And we're also using $7 corn, $500 bean meal. So it's the really the highest historic feed prices to get that $15 mm-hmm. profit. Well, that's really interesting to know that. I mean, we've ta- I guess we've taken it for granted in the swine industry when we think about amino acids and titrations that, you know, it's one size fits all. And obviously, probably spend somebody's whole career studying Berkshire amino acid requirements. And I would even imagine the ratios are going to be different. Well, I think you're right. And and we maintain the ratio of the other essential amino acids. So we just did a titration on lysine and, and kept everything. Right. Balance. And unfortunately we did real time ultrasound on these pigs, but it's my gut is telling me that these, Berkshire and Berkshire sired pigs put on their muscle mass earlier than the tri- traditional pig. And I'm mm-hmm. thinking my modeling days in grad school, I, I think these have a, a lower m- mature body weight. And if you look at lean growth, I think it's higher. And then, so say from 125 pounds to market, we're probably trying to manage fat accretion instead of protein accretion. 
Well, no, and I would agree. And this is what, you know, working with these underserved producers and understanding their needs and developing, to me, training programs or, or production programs like you're developing is a lot of these producers are not so interested in that meat. How much lean meat can I have? How much, And they want to know how much fat can I produce? And they're, a lot of these guys are making a lot of money on hard. Oh, yeah. Well, it, they're selling lard and they're selling lard because the, the perception is if I have lard, I get marbling. And if I get marbling, I get flavor. And that's what they're selling. That That's part of the story that they're selling. But that, uh, we know it's not the truth. And we argue with these people, you and I, in these Facebook groups and trying to get them to understand the difference between marbling and, and lard is totally different. Oh, yes. And it's one of those arguments that you just need to stop having. Oh, well, well I have. I have. I've had. But, you know, I'm just looking at, you know, as I look to help people, right? So I work with pasture-based pork producers. They're Abelberg cross, Durant cross. How do we help feed them, right? And really, your research came out to say, hey, I probably should be lowering these amino acids, not keeping up with the genetic standards. Oh, definitely. As I've worked, interacted with Berkshire producers, they are emphatic. You cannot feed a bird like a commercial pig. And now we have a foundation where you can look at, at that and, and help improve profitability by feeding properly. And right. we, we're not, you don't have to feed a 150-pound Berkshire pig uh, 16%, 1.0 SID license. It's a waste of money. Right. But we, we can have those resources behind before to address that. Was the two two points that we need to discuss on um, the meat quality because we did take these pigs, we took five pound loin samples to Iowa State University and we used the same criteria and evaluation that the American Bircher Association uses for their annual progeny test. We looked at retail case criteria and then eating criteria. Program that resulted in the greatest profitability also was a program that had best purge loss and a darker color, which is more appealing to the consumer. They're also uh, reduced chewiness and had a better eating experience, according to a trained uh, consumer fan. Very interesting. Because when we put it in trial, we wanted to make sure that we didn't uh, affect that because this meat is being sold on white tablecloth and it has a story behind it and it has that flavor behind it. At the worst, we didn't do that. At the best, we improved it. So for our listeners who maybe are not in the niche world, to me, this trial and this experience speaks volumes potentially on what we need to do to better serve our um, higher end clients on the meat side. Well, it's interesting you say that because uh, and I, when we first presented this data to Iowa Port Congress in January, there, there was a contingent of diehard Berkshire breeders that had been in breeding Berkshire's for decades in some cases and the theme that we had from all of them was it's about time somebody paid attention to and from a consumer standpoint there are consumers that will purchase this for they're going to buy the bacon from a Berkshire or heritage they're going to buy the loins from this type of producer because either they want the flavor they want the story they have some other criteria that they want to purchase it for. But they're not going to go Costco and buy that $1.99 whole lot. 
that's so we're dealing with a different consumer that has higher expectations for their eating experience. So what do we need to do next as an industry? Talk about the pork board research. Do we need to, as a industry, invest more into the snitch pork and, and helping that and, and catering to those consumers? Well, selfishly, I think nobody needs to do any more research. <laughs> that way we can say the answer. <laughs> well, you have an answer, right? But Without a doubt, this is an underserved part of the pork industry. As being on some committees that deal with checkoff dollars, we've had those discussions, and it, 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 it sometimes it's a tough sell. No, I get it, but I mean, part of sustainability for me in the industry, our pork demands down. Pork demands down, but the pork demand for Berkshire pork is up. Is up. That's what I mean. People want a better experience, higher quality food. And we look at this in our traditional commercial model is cheap pork. We talk about sustainability. Well, for the pork industry and in the U.S. to be sustainable, it, it can't be cookie cutter. No. And, and one of the things I use to help our sales team understand the importance of this market is looking at the USDA pasture pork retail price comparison. Mm-hmm. last one I used was in December and it's like two to four times the price of commodity retail pork. Like yeah. tenderloin is 16 to $24 a pound compared to like six or eight for commercial. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is opportunities out there and I don't know what the next step is because the nice thing about commercial research, it, there's a lot of cookie cutter. We we can talk about nuances between a wet dry feeder and a dry feeder and, and a tunnel ventilated versus a curtain ventilated, but those are nuanced discussions of a system that is pretty identical. Mm-hmm. What we run into with these specialty markets, and some of our customers are feeding in confinements with more more space requirements. Others are feeding hoop barns that are deep bedded. Others aren't straight pasture. Some are dirt lined. So it, it, <laughs> oh, it's it's all over the board. <laughs> yes, yeah, difficult because it's all over the board. So what we've taken as our stance to apply our research is no different than we discussed at the beginning. We're going to use this as the benchmark, and right. then we're going to up or down based upon the production system, and most of that's based on feed intake and maintenance requirements. No, I mean, I think that's important. And, you know, one of some of the meetings I had at World Pork this year was we need different feeder options for this type of producer. We need to go back to some of the old paneer feeders that I saw in grad school on the pasture operation that, that Goods had north of Kansas or north of Manhattan. They had the hood over them, so production from water and it swung so that they could keep the feed moving. It, yeah, we, it's a, it'll take a different mentality to address this. I think it's interesting. I've enjoyed working with these types of producers because I actually have room to help them, if that makes sense, and they're open to new ideas. But yeah, it's challenging to find good quality. So, you know, I appreciate Kent Nutrition and what you've done for this industry and look forward to seeing that continued growth and serving that market better. Well, and I think the most powerful piece of the data that we have. Um, was my attempt to model it. I talked to Dr. Schenkel about modeling that our, our data is just too dirty with a couple of things in the data set. But when we, you do a, a rudimentary model to it and we look at feed conversion and equate that to feed costs, 
I think the most powerful piece of this data set is that tells us you get a pig that's over 275 pounds, your fear conversion just goes stupid. Yeah. My analysis said if you take a pig to 300 pounds, you're well, you're, you're at five pounds. If you take it to five and a quarter, you're approaching five and a half pounds. And I think we can take this to our, our feeders and say, hey, we need to be smart about how we're marketing this pig. No, no different than what we're talking about with our commercial producers mm-hmm. with minimizing losses and minimizing feed waste and getting these marketed a little earlier because of the economics of it. You take a retail feed price, you know, $400 a ton for a retail feed that some of these people are feeding, and you convert it at five, you're on the edge of losing money. Yeah. So I think that you combine that with, with the target point of the type of fat cover we need for your customer and your feed costs and here we need to be cognizant how how heavy we're taking these food no i would agree and i I always find there's a lot to learn and i'm learning on uh i could be too good of a nutritionist with some of these guys so get more on the bird side right (laughs) when they keep telling me my my carcass weights are too high for their targeted market (laughs) you know i need to like, I guess we need to go backwards, <laughs> and it's hard to do when you're trained like we are. Oh, totally. But at the same time, Casey, these customers are harking back to when you and I were kids or in high school. Mm-hmm. More of a traditional kind of family farm. In some regards, they've been left behind, not because of the Berkshire, but, you know, they don't have 1,200 heavy groups they can move. It's also a way that we can keep some people on the farm. Unlike, there typically isn't the high capital demand in some of these operations, and that's why mm-hmm. people are doing it. Oh, yeah. And I cherish that. And I just, I would like to see some, if the support board listening or other companies out there to to let them register. And we need to target them because those are also future leaders of our industry that can segue into commercial world i mean that's how i grew up i grew up showing pigs we're just talking about your son showing near in your niece you know showing pigs smaller operation we were big i mean my dad worked for a big producer at the time but in today's standard not and i went into the industry and active part of the commercial side just as much as niche and i i just feel sometimes we neglect that as an industry for the sustainability and personnel coming into the industry. Without a doubt, uh, we need to take every road to recruit people into not only our industry, but agriculture, that's for sure. I mean, and you look at a lot of the integrators today, look at the mash-offs. That was a family company, hordes. Who else we can name that are on the top 20 list that started out as a small family farm that we're talking about. With 150 sows. And isn't that the Heimel story? Isn't that the Daikai yep. story? Yeah. yeah. So I think there's also things to learn there and not just nutrition, but just of how to grow our industry and keep it going. Oh, yes. And, and the other thing that I think both you and I are learning is a better appreciation of Animal Science 321 alternative feedstuffs. Mm-hmm. Questions of, well, I don't want to feed corn, I don't want to feed soy, or I'm raising pigs in northwest Montana and I don't have corn and soybean milk. What do I do? Okay, so 
dill peas, lupins, wheat, oats. It's resurrecting some brain cells that I thought were dead a long time ago. Oh, yeah. Can you make me a corn soy free diet? I'm like, yeah, I sure can. Um, I'll have to go back and study that a little again and refresh my memory. But <laughs> well, and and you bring up a really good point. I had an experience on a Facebook group last week that was an illustration that we are working with people that don't have the same generational knowledge that I have. And it was talking about corn and soybean free. And this producer said, I feed only 2% more canola meal than, than some of you use for soybean meal, and my pigs are going great. And I'm thinking, whoa, no, 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 something doesn't add up. You get mm-hmm. 2% and you're, you're 80%, and you, you and I do the, the PhD nutritionist math, that doesn't make sense. And I raised the uh, objection saying there's no way. Well, it ended up, what was she, what else was she? Oh, she was using field peas. Oh, yeah. No <laughs> understanding that field peas combined with canola was a, a replacement for soybean meal. And she was doing a good job, but didn't mm-hmm. understand that peas was equal to soybeans. Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of education that the industry can do. And it's oppor- so it's an opportunity for the industry at the same time. Right. You know, I appreciate it. I'm not the only nutritionist out there targeting them and talking to them because I think we do help them. There's some people we're never going to help, Jim, in those groups. But I think we as an industry could do more outreach as well for that market. Right. And and I think it's just because they're lazy and they don't want to do a Google search or call somebody like they used to. Like we used to call our extension agent. And I think I don't know if it's lazy, I should say, but, you know, they just come on Facebook and ask for help. And I'm just like, oh, my, you know. <laughs> yeah. Or there's confirmation bias. Yeah. Your your Google search would lead you where you, you want to go. Right. And just interacting with some of these Facebook groups, I see a lack. There are underserved lack of knowledge. How do we get them educated to be good pork producers? Because with ASF hit. We need to have them as part of our our team, right? You can't have them against us. And that's yeah. kind of just why I've been really researching this. And I think they don't trust us, PhDs, big companies, right? And I feel that in these groups, like antitrust, big corporate ag, is that what they see as big corporate ag. And Kent's on that borderline where you could still say, pull off a little bit that you're a small guy. But how can we get them on our same team and how can we help them give that knowledge they need when extensions not like it was veterinarian relationships aren't like it was, Uh, you know, back when there was a lot of smaller farms. Right. And this this bias or antitrust they have in us. So I was going to mention this offline, but I had this exact conversation as part of some of the committees I've done in the past with checkup organizations. And the consensus is, yes, they need help. But some people said that they don't contribute enough checkoff dollars to justify it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the show pig industry doesn't contribute probably as much checkoff dollars as we invest as an industry into it. But we have a right. reason for it. Mm-hmm. Recruitment, sustainability, Good partnership, and it's a good investment. I think helping this underserved part of the pork industry would be a good investment for us all 
to help break down that barrier of I'm raising good pork, they're raising bad pork. And that's what they're telling our consumers, right? We're fighting for the consumers and because they're face to face with these consumers every day at the farmer's markets, they're telling a story that makes us look bad. And, you know, and I'm like, and I tell people all the time, Solness, I'm like, you can sell whatever type of nutrition you want. Don't knock the other stuff when you are being ignorant and promoting lies. Just sell on the merit of your, your product. You and I agree on that. Yeah. yeah. Promote your and, stuff. Don't put down your competition. And that's, I mean, that's what I try to do. And, you know, I just, I think it's a learning lesson. We, we went off topic. We're just going to talk about the Burke program, but I think this is an important piece the industry needs to hear. I would love feedback from others. You know, reach out, tell us, tell your pork off, your checkoff dollars. Where do you want that money to go? You know, that kind of stuff. So, And that took them returning to our Berkshire. That's what part of the discussion was when we were in our research committee to plan this trial. It was, we don't know about the, we, first, we don't know how to feed these pigs. And these, if it's different, then this is an underserved market. Obviously, it's a, a, a profit opportunity for Kent, but it's an opportunity to help an underserved part of our customer base and mm-hmm. as a the whole pork industry. No, and the, you brought it back. Thanks for bringing it full circle. We went on our rabbit chase, but definitely love the research. And as I said, thank you, Kent Nutrition, and thank you, Dr. Smith, for leading the way. Great. Well, and if anybody has any questions, we can be reached at you know kent.com or reach out through Casey. Okay. Yep, definitely. We'll send it. So, all right. Thanks a lot, Casey. This is a great yep. conversation. Thanks for letting Thanks. us share our research. Yeah, definitely. Obviously, there are several other feed additives represented at World Pork Expo that are near and dear to my heart. But I could not interview everyone, but I have plans to continue education and the love for other products on the Real P3. So stay tuned.